Mark chapter 6 is going to be the text for us this evening. We're going to finish off this, <clears throat> finish off this chapter here. A lot of ways is the epilogue for all the things that's come before us throughout the entire uh, chapter, or the entire chapter 6 here. We're going to be reading from Mark chapter 6, verse 53 to 56. When they had crossed over, they came to the, na- to the land at, at Gennarset and moored to the shore. When they got out of the boats, immediately the people recognized him and ran about the whole country and began to carry here and there on their pallet those who were sick to the place where they heard he was. Wherever he entered villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplace and imploring him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. And as many as touched, it were being cured. Lord God, thank you for your word again and just your revelation of yourself through your word. We're thankful how you have providentially brought and used uh, Mark, really through Peter, uh, to write down the testimony of your faithfulness. Lord, we look to your text so that we can know you more and to cherish you and to hold on to the faith, especially when there are times of great difficulty. Lord, give us insight into your word and allow us to apply it to our lives. Be with us this evening. Just give us strength as we know this is the end of the week. Give us attentive ears and soft hearts to hear your word. We thank you, Lord, in your son's precious name. Amen. Modern technology and movies and entertainments have this unique, or this is really this secondary result that we may not be aware of in our own lives. And one of the things that it does is that it actually dulls us of the things that are actually supernatural. Because we watch movies and media, and you know, consume so much media that whenever we read something like Jesus healing or walking on water, it seems almost normal to us. But we understand that this is actually a way that I think the devil tries to delude us into making us think that the supernatural is just a regular occurrence. But yet, when you understand that when the people saw Jesus do these miracles. And when they read about these things, it gave them a tremendous amount of hope and increased their faith. We look at this in these, uh, these last several weeks of how Jesus did all of these different type of miracles, and he's going to do more later on in the book of Mark. And yet, sometimes when we read these things, it just seems so familiar to us that it doesn't impact us the way that it should. And I like to remind all of us that this book is written so that we can see the life of Jesus, so that we can know him more. The book of Mark, it can be summarized as in, in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He came into the world and lived a life that is different from what we would expect a person like God to live. He didn't come to be domineering. Rather, his first coming was a life of servitude. He came into the world as a humble man to win people to the Lord. 
In, last, uh, in the last several weeks, we saw how Jesus, and starting from verse 33, how he fed the, th- the 5,000. They were supposed to go on this little retreat, a little break, but instead they were intercepted by a massive crowd, and Jesus just took a little boy's lunch and was able to multiply it so that everyone was fed. And it shows us this compassion that our Savior has for those that are around him. He has this, he cares for them. He knows that these are the people that are a people, uh, like, it's like a sheep without a shepherd. In a lot of ways, uh, chapter 6, verse 33 to 44 shows us this is almost like a fulfillment of Psalm 23, that there is this shepherd that, that cares about the sheep, that lays them beside green grass and still waters and nourishes the people there. At the end of this miracle, there was 12 baskets left for the disciples. And again, to fulfill the fact that early on in the book, Jesus told them to not have any, don't worry about anything. Don't worry about carrying loads of food or extra clothing. Jesus will provide for all things. But yet we learned from last week that they, even though this miraculous event happened, their hearts were still hardened to the Lord. That they didn't understand who Jesus who Jesus really is. And last week we talked about how Jesus walked on water. He walked, he saw, he, he, he dismissed the crowd. He commanded his disciples to go across the, the, the sea. And then they were caught in a storm. And they were worried because they were essentially rowing for about nine hours or so. And one thing that I failed to mention last week was that there was a parallel passage where after they saw Jesus and they didn't recognize him, they didn't know that that was Jesus. They thought it was just some sort of ghost. And yet in the parallel count, Peter at some point recognizes Jesus. He said, take courage to design, do not be afraid. And somewhere in between that event, Peter decides to go off the boat. So he kind of stood on water for a little bit, but because of the storms around him, that fear overwhelmed his faith, and he sank into the water. And Jesus came, took him out, asked him why did he have little faith, why didn't he trust Jesus, and he brought him back in the boat, and then they continued on. This event here shows that Jesus Christ is more than a man, that he controls the storms. In fact, in the, in the book of Isaiah, it speaks about how, Je- how Yahweh, God, walks on the water, and Jesus does just that, to show the disciples that Jesus is God. It's supposed to give them encouragement. It's supposed to give them assurance that, the, that, that these disciples, when they're giving up everything to follow Jesus, that they're giving up their life to follow a true and living God. And remember how last week I talked about, think about what the original audience would have, must have felt when they read that. They've heard about Jesus. They were evangelized too. Now they get a copy of scripture and they're reading this and they're just completely blown away by this. By the fact that there is this event where Jesus actually walked on water, that he defied all natural orders and it gave them strength to know that even though they're giving up everything for life, that they actually gain eternal life in Christ. Jesus did a tremendous amount of miracles in the, in the Gospels. In the time when the New Testament believers were reading this, when they first got this letter, the miraculous gifts have slowly died down. There wasn't as many as they were. They probably heard about all these miracles that the apostles did. And all the miracles that the apostles did trace back to Jesus Christ. It was to point them and authenticate that Jesus Christ is Lord. And now they get to read it. 
And First Peter reminds us that we have something even greater than the miracles and that we have scripture, that God's word testifies to, uh, tells us who he is and it reveals to us in scripture that the things that you read about Jesus, the thing that you read about God is one and the same and that we have complete assurance that our faith leads us to eternal life that Jesus is indeed worth living and dying for. Christ's healings have always, or his miraculous, all his miracles have intended purpose, and that's to uh, show them that he is the Christ. Yet we know that Jesus walking on water, doing miracles, does not mean that everyone gets saved. In fact, it seems that even though Judas was one of the people in the boat, he's witnessed all of these miracles, yet his own heart is hardened to the Lord. It doesn't seem like he's ever repented. I mean, obviously we know from Scripture that he didn't repent, but it just seemed like his heart was hardened even more as time progresses. More miracles uh, and more uh, miraculous things that he sees and has witnessed to, he doesn't believe because he loves something more than Christ. Now we continue on in verse 53, when they had crossed over uh, they, they, to this land, uh, it seems that uh, in John 6, it seems like it, it just happens almost miraculously. They were in this place in the middle of the water, the storm happens, Jesus gets in the boat, the storm stops, and John chapter 6, they immediately went to shore. And it doesn't seem, if you just kind of take the parallel accounts, it just seems like there's some, another supernatural event happened, that Jesus, they were in the middle of the ocean, or in the middle of the lake, and obviously they were in the middle because if they were close to the shore, they would have just swam, or they could just got off the boat and then went onto land. But then something happened where there was some sort of like, quantum leap in from the middle of the water all the way to the shores. And when they got there, a whole bunch of people came and they recognized them. This area that they went to is known for their fertile, uh, all the fertile, uh, all the, it's, a fertile, it's like a very fertile place, it's known for all their fruits, in fact, uh, the Jewish people at the time said that if you ever get fruit from this area, you're not allowed to bring it because you can't, people will be tempted to just steal the fruits because uh, it's just so delicious there from this particular land. So this is a farming area. And Jesus arrives here into the shore. And we look at verse 40, 54, we notice that when they got out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him. Now, obviously, Jesus going into the water and going into the, uh, this land supernaturally uh, there was no way that there was some sort of like message that they, they would receive saying, hey, Jesus is on his way. Everything just happened. But yet there was a crowd providentially just there, and they, they recognized Jesus. There was no way for them to expect his arrival, but when they saw him, they immediately recognized him. And the result of that is that they, brought in, they told everyone, and a whole group of people came. They recognized Jesus. They've heard of him. They've, in fact, this word recognize just means that they, 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 they almost have, they, they recognize him, like they see him, they know exactly who it is. They could pinpoint that this person is Jesus. And it could be because maybe they, some people recognize him in terms of what he looked like. Maybe they just looked at, hey, there's a 12 guys and there's that one guy there that, that kind of stands out as the leader. Everyone else, all the disciples probably still terrified. But there's one guy that seems very confident, like, oh, that must be Jesus. And throughout the book of Mark, we see that he's healed the leper in chapter 1, he healed the paralytic in chapter 2, in chapter uh, 3, he healed the man with, with the withered hand, and in chapter 5, he healed, he resurrected a dead little girl. Jesus was very popular, and the people there recognized him. 
They recognized him because of his, his popularity. But yet this is very fascinating that Mark uses this word recognize. Because there's the contrast here to the people on the land and when, they, and when the disciples were at the sea. Because when, when the disciples were in that storm, they did not recognize Jesus. They didn't know that it was Jesus Christ. Even though they have a close relationship with him, even though they've seen him uh, deal with a storm once before, they did not recognize him. Now, it is easy for us to think, how did the disciples fail to recognize him? But you understand that we can fall into the same type of temptations and shortcomings as well. Because for us, it's easy for us to criticize these disciples, but how do we know that we recognize Jesus? Obviously, it's from Scripture, but what is the test of that? How, do we, how can we be tested to know that when we read Scripture about the life of Jesus and all the things, that his divinity, his, and all his different attributes, his life, how do we know that we truly recognize that Jesus Christ is Lord based on what we're reading? Well, the, I think the, the most natural evidence is that how, when people look at your life, do they recognize Christ indwelling in you? Do they see Christ's likeness in the way that you live? Because if you truly recognize and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, then there should be an impact in your life that goes beyond just intellectual knowledge of God's word. It goes beyond just head knowledge of what I know about Jesus Christ and all the Sunday school answers. When you recognize Jesus in your life, other people should recognize a change in your life as well. In fact, this word recognize is the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 7. It says you'll recognize them by their fruits. If they are truly believers and followers of Jesus Christ, you will recognize them by their actions. Yet these disciples, although they failed to recognize Jesus at the time for who he is, they had a little faith. It was a faith that was just built around fear. And yet God was just so gracious and kind because be patient with them. They, the crowd, although they have not, although most of them have not traveled with Jesus, they recognize Jesus Christ. Now you have to ask yourself, can you, just through your life, and if you acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, and you recognize that the things that are revealed in Scripture is truly, that Jesus is truly God, can people recognize that you truly follow Jesus? Can they see that? Does your life match the, your profession? You claim to be, recognize Jesus as Lord, and when people look at your life, can they say, yeah, this guy, I recognize him because he looks like Jesus Christ. More often than not, we're actually more like the disciples that we can see and be cl- up close in the things that we read about Jesus Christ, yet fail to truly recognize him. Look at verse 55, and, uh, and the people, the crowd ran about the whole country and began to carry here and there on their pallets those who were sick to a place where they heard he was. It says here that they were here and there. It means that they, he, they went all over the place. Uh, they saw Jesus and probably, and perhaps uh, the, the people that recognized him, maybe they had a friend or a relative that was cured by Jesus. And they say, oh, I have another relative that's sick or another friend that's sick. So they run off to try to find that sick relative or that sick friend. And they say, bring those people out. Jesus is here. Our Savior, uh, the, Jesus is here, the, the miracle worker, that man that healed everyone in the other places, now here with us. Bring them. Bring them all. And it says here that they were sick. And this word sick is just a general term, meaning that it could have been everything. It could have been, the paral- it could have been like another person that's paralyzed, another person with leprosy, another person with a withered hand, or probably some people that died. Whatever sickness, whatever illness, they just bring them all, and Jesus 
is going to make it all well. Again, it's possible that some of the people that were there were believers. But we know in John chapter 6, which is really the parallel account to this passage here, was that they didn't actually keep the faith. They came seeing Jesus as some sort of miracle worker that can give them some sort of temporal benefits. Jesus is the center focus here, but yet they failed to recognize Jesus as Lord. It's almost like the opposite of what the disciples had. Disciples had this faith that is built upon, had this faith, but yet they were still filled with fear. And these followers, they were like a fair weather faith. They only believed temporarily because they knew that Jesus can do these miraculous things. But in John chapter 6, in that parallel accounts, he was teaching them about what it means to have eternal life, that they had to eat the bread of life. And at the end of that, everyone left. And, then, and Jesus asked Peter, where did everybody go? Are you going to leave me too? And, Jesus, and Peter responded by saying, Lord, you, where, where else can we go? You are the one that can give eternal life. Both of them have either a very shallow faith or, or, or lack thereof. Look at their verse 56. Wherever he entered villages or cities or countryside, they were laying this, the sick in the marketplace and imploring him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. And as many as, it, and as, many as touched it were being cured. Many people were healed in many different ways. See, or really just one way, they're just hoping that Jesus would, they would just touch um, just this, the, the fringe of his coat. It's probably like a tassel, not necessarily just like a cloak, like a tip of the fabric, but more like a, most likely Jesus was wearing something that had like some sort of tassels at the end, and they just wanted to touch that. And this happened before with the lady that just kept bleeding. That's what she did. She just reached in, and then she touched in faith, and she was healed. But this word here, cured, I think Mark used this word intentionally because this word cured here is in the passive. The Nazbe translate were being cured. This idea that the reason why they were healed was not actually because they laid out all on the ground. It wasn't because they even reached out to grab the tassels. But it's because they were healed. The healing work was being done to them. It was passive. Jesus acted upon them. And this word cured here is the same word for salvation. And I think Jesus did this because some of the people there truly did believe in others. It was just common grace. He, our Lord was a very merciful God. Even those that he knows that would reject him, that would leave him, that would abandon him. He knows that some people are there to exploit him. He was still willing to cure them. And nothing to do with their ability or lack thereof. It was just God's grace to them. Sadly, much like the miracle of the bread... Again, John 6 tells us that many people end up leaving. Yet we see God's still merciful. Even though people took advantage of them, he came to serve them. You see that, right? You see, you understand now that the totality of the book of Mark shows you how Jesus is willing to lay down his own life, that he's willing to care for people who do not love him or do not worship him. Jesus knew that these people are needy, not for salvation, they, in their minds, they, he knows that they don't want him for that, but yet he still was willing to meet their needs. It is common grace. This is how in, in the book of Matthew said Jesus pours rain on the wicked and the righteous. And this is what God is doing. He's giving them a temporal relief in hopes that perhaps they will one day recall to mind and come to repentance. 
And it's interesting to note that miracles don't always produce faith. Miracles does not always produce faith, faith or, um, or even a correct response. Jesus didn't do the miracles to entertain them, or he didn't do it to amuse them, but he did it so that people could know that he is God. He, he wants people to worship him. Jesus knows what they want, yet he was just so patient with them. Every miracle that he shows in the book of Matthew and really throughout the, all four of the Gospels is to show them just the forces of what is to come. There's going to be a greater miracle that he's going to demonstrate when he dies and he rises from the grave. That's, I think, the chief miracle because he shows us that he's conquered death. I mean, people have died. Uh, he, he resurrected them and they died again. But this time when he rises from the grave, he's telling us and giving us a picture that when we place our faith in him, we will have eternal life. Many will try to look for these small miracles and, and miss the big one. But what are, we, what are we supposed to do with this? What are we supposed to do with this passage here? And I have just three application points for us. First, you understand that Jesus cares for us. Jesus cares for us as followers of Jesus Christ. In this short little story, we see that Jesus still cared and, and cared for the disciples and cared for those, those few followers that he might have had, even though they were in the midst of doubt and fear. He kept his disciples even though they had this weak faith. He didn't say, okay, I, okay I, I've tested you so many times, you failed. I, could, I know you're hard-hearted for now, and therefore I'm just going to start over. You 12, leave, and I'm going to just start over again with another 12. No, he was incredibly patient with them. He was incredibly kind, and he cared for them. And we see that Scripture tells us to care for one another. If we look at this Jesus and how he cares for his disciples, and that should motivate us to care for one another as well. John chapter 13, verse 34 to 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And Jesus had that perfect love to those that are incredibly unfaithful to him those that constantly doubt him, those that are constantly skeptical of him, those that are constantly in fear because they, they're afraid of the storms in life and they're not trusting in him. Yet Jesus Christ was so patient in his love for them. Romans chapter 12, verse 10, it says, Be devoted to one another and brotherly love. Give preference to, the one, to one another in honor. I actually prefer the ESV translation where it says, Outdo one another in showing love. You try your best to not, not in a competitive way, but you're always willing to think what's best for the other person because you care about them. You see how Jesus cares about his disciples, how he cares about us, and that should translate to how we care about one another in the church body. First Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12, and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people just as we also do for you. It is the Christian duty to go and love one another. This is what makes us different from the world. We are known, I mean, all of us, I mean, some of us are related to one another, but for the most part, when we all came to church, we were all at one point strangers. But what binds us together is our love for Jesus Christ. And, 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 what, and when the world, when they see us, it's strange. Like, why would you make such great sacrifices to someone that isn't a family member? Why would you go to such great lengths to care about those 
that are not, that are just, that you've just met for a, little, for a day or so. And it's because that's how our Savior is. He cares for us, and therefore we need to learn and think of practical ways to care for one another. First Peter chapter 1, verse 22, since you have an obedience to the truth, purify your souls for sincere love of the brethren. Fervently love one another from the heart. In Philippians 2, it tells us that we do not, do not only care about our own preferences, but view other people as more important than ourselves. Again, Jesus is that example. He has, he has his love for his disciples, and that should compel us to model after our lives after him and love one another in the context of the church. Not only that Jesus cares for us, but our second application point is that Jesus cares for the lost. Again, I've made this reference a little bit, and I kind of talked about this earlier, but he understood that there are people that are just there for sake of just the miracles, yet he still showed them common grace. I think in particularly in our city where we tend to be almost dismissive and apathetic. Uh, and, I, and I don't mean necessarily caring just for the poor. I mean just generally our city doesn't, doesn't really have a culture of caring for people. You know, we're, we're very self-centered. We're, we live in a world that just dwells on what we want and what I want, what makes me happy. But the Christian love is different. We're called to, yes, love one another, but we're also cared to love the lost. And I think that's what makes our church in a very unique place is because the world doesn't understand love. We have, we have, you can see signs all over the place that say love wins or, or we, are, uh, we are all for love and this is a city of love. But yet their love is a superficial kind of love. The love that we want to demonstrate and show to our non-believing friends and neighbors is a love that is beyond even our own comprehension. We have to be willing to make those sacrifices and serve those that, who are lost in hopes to win them to Christ. That's why we're here. We are here as believers is to represent Jesus Christ. And we need to go beyond our comfort zone in order to do that. Yes, I think we do a, a pretty decent job in caring for those in the church. And I commend you to excel still more in those areas. But how are you in terms of trying to win your neighbors, your classmates, or your coworkers? Or do, you, or do, you, do those people in your life that do not know Jesus Christ, are you thinking about and praying about ways in which you can try to have gospel influence in this life or in, in their life? This past week, I was listening to this, uh, this Desiring God uh, Ask Pastor John Piper podcast thing, and he, he, had, he tells a story about how he tried to win his neighbor to Christ, and it took him two years to finally summon the courage to go and share the gospel with him. But in those two years, he, he said he moved into this house next to his neighbor. He was able to be nice to them. He, tells them that, he told them he's a pastor. And for years, he didn't do anything. He, was, he would you know, bring them food over. He would uh, even invite him into his home and have meals. But he never shared the gospel with him. And Piper said that that was like this thorn in his mind. He's always constantly remembering about his neighbor. He's telling everyone in his church how you need to come to Jesus, but yet for some reason he doesn't have the boldness to go share to the one neighbor that lives just a few steps away from his house. And he was praying and asking for God for that boldness, and he was frustrated with himself, so he, he took this piece of paper and wrote down what does, how much is Jesus worth? How much is Jesus worth to me? What is this worth to me? He writes down all the things that he loves about Jesus Christ. He said, that's why I want to do what I want to do. Essentially, he just wrote down the gospel. He said, if I love Jesus, if he is this valuable to me, then I need to go and try to win my neighbor. 
And he spent years just praying and praying. He, and he tells a story where at the very end, he, asked, he had his people from his church go to his house, and they would pray, like, I'm going to go to my neighbor's house right now, pray for me. And so he left his, you know, basically left his guests and go to just try to evangelize to his, to his neighbor. I don't know if, if that guy eventually come to saving faith, but, but yet yeah, it's, it's a very profound story. Because even someone like Piper struggles with sharing and loving those that are lost. And I know for some of us, it's the same way. I mean, earlier, I remember in the year, I, I said that one of the things that I want to encourage all of us is think of one person to share the gospel to. One person. And, by, and then I gave you like a, a deadline with like May, and then and maybe the way, this is now a good time to ask that question. How are you in terms of praying for that one person? Have you thought about this person? Have you tried to engage them? What are those practical steps you're making to go and try to share the gospel with them? Because although you may do very nice things for them, the greatest way that you show that you care about your neighbor is that you're willing to share the gospel with them. That's why Jesus came, right? Jesus came into the world not to be served, but to serve and give his life for a rans- as a ransom for many. He came to rescue sinners, and that is our job as well. If we want to model our life after Jesus Christ, we must be willing to care for the lost. Not only do we care for those around us, care for not, not only does Jesus care for us and Jesus care for the lost, but Jesus is incredibly patient for those who lack faith. Jesus is incredibly patient to those who lack faith. Again, I made this reference. He sees those that lack faith in their lives, and he sees the lack of faith that we have as well. What makes you grow in Christ is not some sort of outside evidence, but rather it's to look to Christ. It's to look to Jesus that's revealed in Scripture. Some of us, and I'm sure some of you right now, at this very moment are struggling with your faith. You have these ups and downs, and this is just a season of your life now where it's a low point. And the only encouragement that I have for you is to look to Jesus Christ. And because he's just so patient with you. You're at this low point, but remember that at some point in your past, the not-so-distant past, he rescued you from, from, your, from darkness and brought you into the kingdom of light. He answered so many of your prayers. He sustained you. He was, he forgiven, he's forgiven you even though you constantly fall into sin. And yet when you're in those low points, remember how good God has been to you. Even in your lowest point now when you're struggling with believing whether or not this is real, God is still being incredibly patient with you. And that should, that, should trans, that should translate for us a greater affection for him. Because I know if I was in a position where I invested so much in an individual and that person doubts the, my, my, my love for them, I would be upset. But yet God is so patient. He sees our lack of faith. He sees the moments where we doubt, and yet he still cares for us. He still shows us common grace. He still uh, blesses us beyond our own comprehension. He saw his disciples fear and fail, and yet we are no different. He's patient with us, and therefore that should cause us to love him more. But not only that, but it should also cause us to be patient with one another. There are going to be people in your life that you share the gospel with, that may become the saving faith, that you pour into, invest in, and they may seem to keep falling back to the same patterns of sin every few months, and it gets frustrating, and you try to encourage them, you pray for them, you, 
you, you talk about scripture, you memorize scripture together, and yet there are those seasons where they seem to do well and they fail again. And it can be very frustrating for us to continue to minister to those types of people. But yet at the same time, understand that we are no different. In light of who Jesus Christ is, we should be patient to others just the way that Jesus has been patient with us. This is why in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, this is a verse that we've heard a lot. Verse 5, verse 14, we will urge your brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after which is good for one another and for all people. We as Christians should be patient with one another because God is so patient with us. Remember that Jesus here, he, saw, he, he sees all these people. He knows their thoughts. He knows their secret thoughts. He knows what's truly going on in their minds, yet he's still so kind to them. Yet we, we don't have these divine abilities. So in some ways, that's a good thing. But yet, we need to have the patience that is demonstrated by our Lord Jesus Christ. Yet, you know, despite the fact that he knows our sin, he still went to the cross. He could have just went up straight to heaven at the moment. It would have been perfectly just. Like, oh, you guys still doubt me after I walked in the water, after I fed, after all of these things, I'm out of here. That would have been perfectly just to just leave all of humanity in the darkness at that moment. But yet God, our Lord Jesus Christ, kept going. He kept living a, a faithful life. And he went to the cross dying for all the people that doubted him, all the people that were skeptical, all the people that slandered him, that, that insulted him, that beat him. He died for them. And even toward the end of his life, he said, Lord, forgive them for they do not know what they do. This is the patience of God. He is so patient with us and that for us as believers, sometimes we, we make excuses to not be patient. Now, you understand, we Oh, they've, we've done this over and over again. Or this, is like, this is the ninth or tenth or the eleventh year I've been ministering to them, yet they failed again and again and again. But just remember how patient God is with you and your sin. And that should motivate us to be patient with one another with our own shortcomings. This is a picture of our Savior. And I hope that this picture here, much like every time when we dive into this book of Mark, that can give you a better window and a greater clarity into our Savior so that you can hold fast to the faith and that you can love him more each and every single day, that you can worship him faithfully and go and tell other people about how great our Savior is. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for revealing yourself. Thank you for caring for us and caring for the lost. For all of us, at one point, were separated from you because of sin but yet you rescued us not because of our own deeds not because of things that we've done in our that, that's good not because we uh not because of our intellectual abilities or our cognitive abilities but it's because of how you love us because of your grace you love us lord even though we do not deserve it lord as we look at different communicable attributes attributes that you can that we can copy and emulate may patience be one of those attributes that we care for other people, that we're so patient with them because you're patient with us, Lord. Work in our hearts so that we can look more like your son, that people can recognize our faith because we truly recognize you as the Lord of lords and the King of kings. We thank you for this time in your son's precious name. Amen. Well, thank you guys for listening.
uh, we have, have some discussion questions, two discussion questions for, uh, for us. Um, no, okay, I'm looking at that, that's like, okay. Yeah, so how, how can we care for one another the way Christ does? And this is just, I, I, I know some of these questions are, are very general, but I'm going to make it more practical for you. Just think about how can you care about your brother or sister this week here in the faith. I like think the way to answer this should not just be like, I, I'm just going to pray for them. That's, that's true, yes. But what are the practical steps you're going to do about that in this weekend? Because I know, you know, we have a few more days that the week is over, and, you, and you know, Sunday, new messages, new questions. But just from now until Sunday, what are the practical ways that you can show care for one another in the context of the church? Second question is, how can we love the lost the way Christ does? What are the tangible ways that we can get to know our non-believing friends this week? Again, if you're thinking about that one person that, that you're trying to evangelize to um, for this, these, these few months, you think about it. What am I doing practically? You know, I mean, it doesn't have to be big steps. You know, I mean, if, you, if the Lord compels you to share the gospel this week, great. But if not, then just think about something that you can do. You know, whether it's just going to say hi or, um, you know, just check in on them. Just, just try to build that relationship with them so that you can, if the Lord provides and, and allows an opportunity for you to share the gospel with them. Just, you know, let your light shine before men. And that's the idea here. And, yeah, just think of these two questions. And I hope you guys have a, uh, a, help, a you know, great discussion time. Because it is going to, you know, as Christians, when we look at Scripture, we model after Christ. It's not supposed to just be something that we learn and go about our day as if nothing happened. Whenever we encounter God's Word, it should change us in some practical way. So, you know, our love for one another and our love for our neighbors should be different after we hear God's Word preached.